Well, ladies and gentlemen, I have a special guest with me. I normally say that every week, but this week is a special week on Victoria's Friday podcast. Uh, back for the trifecta, we have Dr. George Barna. Uh, he has come back because he has just completed uh, a very interesting study on the millennials. Now, that's nothing new. He's been studying a biblical worldview and, and for three or four decades now. So, but what is shocking is what he's gonna share with us today to go deeper uh, in this study that we've been unfolding. And, and that one fact, that highlight that just continues to pull at me is that three fourths of the millennials say that they lack meaning and purpose in life. Dr. George Barner, welcome to Victoria's Friday podcast. Harris, thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Man, it's always good to see you. And I don't know. I mean, I see about four or five guitars in the background. I don't know if you're adding to that list or if it's just the same. I mean, what's happening here? Are you back in the band and what's going on? Uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> a, a jam with people sometimes, but yeah. Uh, yeah, don't get to play as much as I used to. Don't play as well as I used to. You know, you get older, you kind of lose your chops a bit. <laughs> but um, no, I, I just love music. It's a fun thing. Man, I can't believe you lose your chops. You're just probably getting the blues, getting that old school going. Now we're talking. Okay. All right. That's it. Right there. Yeah. Well, you know, you've looked at millennials in America and, and you've gained some new insights that's, boy, revolutionary. I mean, it just re has revealed some, some interesting information. We want to dive deep into that research that you've conducted. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the research on millennials in America and the insights uh, uh, and, and how that, that generation is influencing America. Obviously we know it's the largest generation uh, you know, of late or ever. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the research, how did you get started? And uh, uh, just, you know, just give us some details and, and get us started. Yeah, you know, when we did this project, it was commissioned by an organization called Foundations of Freedom. And as we were talking about the project and its potential, the first thing that we agreed on was we didn't want to repeat what everybody else had already been talking about re regarding millennials. There's a lot of research out there on that generation. And so we were trying to look at what are some holes in our knowledge about the group. And secondly, we wanted to look at things where once we found information, we could begin to identify how can we bless this group of people? What is it that we could do that would help them to become the people that God made them to be? So with that as the framework, you know, we did some background research, identified what had already been studied, and realized there were some gaps in our knowledge. And that's what we looked at. And in doing the, the entire research, I mean, some of it, as with every research project, you look at the data for some questions and say, eh, whatever. But then there are other questions you look at and say, whoa. Now that's really interesting. That's significant. You know, let, let's, let's dig deeper into this. And we have a few of those, you know, one of which was uh, related to that number that, that you pointed out, Terrence, about the fact that three out of four millennials feel that they don't have any meaning or purpose in life. They're still searching for that. That's huge. You know, related to that, another thing we found had to do with the mental health of the generation and the fact that they're struggling in some very significant ways there that they recognize. And so that's important. Uh, a third area had to do with relationships. 
where we found that this is a group that considers relationships to be important and significant, but they're really having a hard time developing a consistent stable of friendships, people who they know and trust and rely upon for advice and guidance and encouragement and support. And so that's a big deal. And then also, of course, one of the areas that I look at a lot has to do with faith. And as you alluded to, the fact that so few of them have a biblical worldview. Uh, but it, when you break that down into, but what does that look like in its component pieces? And you start looking at their beliefs about God and truth and uh, purpose and success and uh, you know what's going to happen in the future. All of these issues, again, raising big sources of trauma for them and big areas that for them represent gaps in knowledge where they don't know what to make of it. So looking at all, the, you know, particularly those four areas for me were the things that, that stood out as being important learnings coming from this research. You know, they were so important and, and so dramatic when I looked at the numbers, I said, I have to get you back on to kind of talk these things through. You know, I was wondering, the first thing I was thinking through is how, do you think the pandemic has had a significant impact or you think uh, we would see these type of staggering statistics even, you know, if there wasn't a pandemic because of the lack of, of worldview? What, what was your take on it? How much impact do you think the pandemic has had on some of the numbers you mentioned, especially around mental anxiety and things of that nature? Yeah, I think what it's done is it's taken pre-existing issues and it's emphasized their importance in the life of these young adults. By the way, when we're talking about millennials in the report, we had defined them as people born between 1984 and 2002. So they were somewhere between the ages of 18 and 37 when we did the research. That's what we're talking about, millennials. You, you talk to 10 sociologists, you get 12 different definitions about the different generational cohorts, but uh, that's how we defined it. And so, yeah, I think the pandemic didn't do any favors to millennials because they really, in many ways, were wrestling with these issues beforehand. But then when you started to rip them out of their usual social contexts, it made it even more difficult for them. And some of the places of potential support, whether that would be churches or schools or clubs that they were part of or sports activities that they participated in, all those places that would help them to get through the day, you take that out of their life. And I think in many ways, what that did is it elevated their awareness of some of the difficulties that they've been wrestling with. So that could be a good thing. On the other hand, it's brought pain into their life and suffering, whether they realize it or not is one issue, but having to deal with it is a separate issue. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, you know, as I go on the college campuses, uh, George, and uh, if I can call you George, that's okay. I mean, it I is my name. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I've been called worse. I'll yeah, tell you that. I, I started to call you Dr. Barner, you know, but yeah. I just feel like we're friends now. I can just say George, right? Bring it on, uh, bring it on. Out of love yeah. and respect. But, yeah. you know, as I go on college campuses and I'm talking to our our next gen, and this would be Gen Z, uh, more right. so than millennials. Uh, and I'm talking to them around purpose. I'm talking to them about life. And 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 just, I tell you, the stories I'm receiving, uh, they're just startling. But, but here's one statistic that I really am encouraged by. Although a large number of them uh, has, has said, hey, you know, I, I didn't grow up in the faith, 
They don't embrace the faith, et cetera. A large number of them is 98%, by the way, have said, boy, I would be interested in having a conversation or a debate or, or just to learn more. And so just as a sign, I mean, I'm wondering how much uh, is this lack of purpose and meaning and so forth uh, as a result of, you know, they didn't grow up in that supporting environment as you mentioned, right? We, they didn't sit around at the coffee table like we did or, or the dining room table like we did and had conversations around, you know, that old King James Bible that we can only understand 15 words out of 30, you know? I don't know what it is, but how do we get back around that kitchen table and have these dialogues? That's something I'm pressed into my heart, right? But here's the question I have for you is, you know, what are the circumstances under which this generation that you're speaking to, the millennial generation, that has grown up in this environment that looks dramatically different than the one I grew up with and perhaps the one you grew up with as well. You know, how do we, how do, how do we deal with this? How do we turn the tide? How do we begin to address some of these issues? Well, you know, in essence, Terrence, what you're asking me about is, and I can call you Terrence, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. My wife tried to, I, I tried to get the Dr. Chapman for one time and yeah, it's like one time when you get the diploma, but other than that, it's like, yeah, yeah whatever, all that hard work, just throw that thing out. All downhill <laughs> after that, isn't it? Yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, th I think really what you're asking about is how would discipleship work in the kind of cultural context that we have today? Yeah. And th there are a few things that, that come to mind. You know, one of those is that we found that uh, through the study, uh, relationships are a tough thing for millennials. But the only people that really get the privilege of building into their mind and heart are the people with whom they have those relationships. So step number one for us has to be, okay, we've got to develop the relationships. Uh, a second thing that I've learned over the course of time is that while many people deny it, there's a real sense of, of generational limitations. And by that, what I mean is millennials don't tend to take advice from my generation, boomers, or the previous generation builders, unless we're actually their grandparents. Now, grandparents have an interesting opportunity, uh, you know, because of a number of different reasons, to be building into the lives of their relatives who are millennials. And so I'd say that's something to keep in mind. Uh, a third thing is to recognize that it has to be an ongoing conversation. Hit and run discipleship doesn't work in our culture today because we're not trusting of other individuals. Trust is a huge factor in America. One of the things we did in this study was we looked at the kinds of people that millennials trust. And we found that they're few and far between. But thankfully, one of the things that the survey also showed is that they'd be willing to trust Jesus Christ. They'd be willing to trust the Bible if those were presented to them in ways that made sense, that weren't threatening, that addressed where they're coming from. So rather than us bringing our agenda into that relationship, what that says is that we're better off letting them identify what are they wrestling with? What are they struggling with? What do they need? How could we really be a blessing to them? Not by 
you know, pounding our agenda into them, but by identifying theirs and responding to it in ways that are geared to helping. That That's really, I think, the, the approach that we need to take. You know, it's a powerful observation, you know, as I think about mutual trust and mutual respect. And you mentioned grandparents, they have the trust and they have the respect. And for those that we trust and respect, we listen to, don't we? And we, you know, we'll take into advice what they're saying, even though we may not you know, necessarily agree, but at least we'll listen. And that what was encouraging to me is that uh, I think this generation is open to listening. As you said, if we can bring it, be consistent and, and bring the message in a way that they uh, uh, will address, not necessarily the way we like it or the way we've been taught it, but maybe a little different approach. So the methodology might change, but the message stays consistent, doesn't it? Well, it, it does. And one of the other things that our research has been uh, continually bringing back to the table is the fact that people aren't learning as much through lectures and sermons and classes and all of that, but they're learning through observation. And so the more that we can model something for them on a consistent basis, the more effective we're going to be in getting that message across. Eventually, they're going to notice it, they're going to think about it, and then they may start asking questions about it. And so then it goes back to the first Peter 3.15, you know, idea of always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that's within you. Why do you behave that way? Why do you believe that? Why do you do this? I have to be ready to tell them, well, here's the reason. And it can't just be because, well, it was convenient. It was, you know, the best option I had. It's like, no, it goes deeper than that. Help them to see the deepness, the depth of what a biblical worldview looks like in practice. I don't do these things by accident. I do them because they're based on a foundation of principles that come from a book that I trust because it's based on the life and the teaching of a man that I trust, and that would be Jesus. And so I'm trying to be more like him. And I believe that if he were here today, this is what he would do. I'm doing my best to emulate that. I don't always succeed, you know, because I'm human. I have limitations. But nevertheless, that's what drives me forward. You know, and that opens the door for other kinds of conversations. And that's a powerful, powerful statement. We're, today, right now, we're talking to Dr. George Barner, uh, talking about his study, that a very extensive study he's done on millennials in America. And he's gained some new insights into the generation of, of this growing influential community. And as we talk about it, one stat that we, we talked about that really was a highlight is that 24 out of 25 millennials 96% lack of biblical worldview, number one. And the second highlight that we talked about is three out of four uh, say that they lack meaning and purpose. And that's a significant, significant number. Uh, Dr. Barner and George, I, I'd like to ask you, what were some of the key findings in addition to those stats that we just mentioned uh, that Christian parents and the church should know so that we can begin to maybe reformulate our practice and, and how to reach this, this group uh, that's so significant. Yeah, Terrence, I think one of the key ones, you know, it was a big deal for me, was finding that 54%, a majority of millennials, admit to having mental and emotional problems. And specifically, what they're most likely to be dealing with are uh, fear, depression, and anxiety. Now, why would they be wrestling with that? It, all of this relates 
you know, to each other. And so when we say they don't have a sense of purpose and meaning in their life, do you think that would cause some anxiety, some fears, some depression? Of course it would. You know, we find that in terms of their faith, most of them now do not believe that the God described in the Bible actually exists. In fact, the fastest growing faith group among millennials is this group we call the don'ts, people who don't believe that God exists, don't know if he exists, or don't care if he exists. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's a growing population. Well, put it in context. When you do not believe that there's a loving, just, omnipotent, omniscient God who's in control of the universe that he created, if you don't believe that, then you believe everything is left to chance. It's all random. Every day is a series of accidents. Do you think that's going to cause some depression, some anxiety, some fear? You know, and then you look at the fact that they're wrestling with relationships. Okay. That means they feel they can't trust other people because other people are going to be exploiting them, taking advantage of them, you know, looking out for their best interests at the expense of your best interests. They're going to lie to you. They're going to cheat you. They're going to steal from you. You know, all of these, gee, do you think that would cause some anxiety, some fear, some depression? So all of these things relate to each other. But in my mind, it comes back to that first number that you were talking about. The fact that only 4% of millennials have a biblical worldview. All right, so you throw God out. You throw out the concept of absolute moral truth. In other words, there's nothing that I can rely upon to always be true, regardless of the circumstances. Once again, everything is spontaneous, random, unpredictable. Okay, you throw out the fact that there's a God who loves you and wants to guide you to thriving in this life. You throw out the fact that when you sin, there's a Savior who can take away that sin, who will protect you from that, who will take care of you forever in spite of that because of his extreme intense love for you. I mean, you throw all these things and more out, you know, and of course you're going to be wrestling. You know, one of the implications, somebody said, well, what difference does all this make? Well, you've probably read the reports from uh, National Institutes of Health and the Census Bureau talking about how the rates of suicide with millennials are the highest we've ever seen. Why is that? It's because there's no absolute moral truth. There's no God. There's no purpose for living. I can't trust other people. There's no predictability to my day-to-day circumstances. I don't know why I'm on the planet. Why should I get out of bed? Again, all these things relate to each other. They tie into a way of thinking. And if we want to break that, that chain that's around their neck, that's choking them, the life, choking the life out of them. We've got to get back to that biblical worldview to help them understand, no, there is a solution. God is that solution. Your creator loves you so much that he's taking care of everything. All he's asking that you do is work with him, work with him on these things. And he even gives us guidelines about how to do that. And he promises us that we'll have a life in which we thrive. So those are our two options. We can work with that kind of loving God who wants us to thrive and gives us what we need to make it happen, or we can go it on our own, where we have the anxiety, the the, the fears, the depressions, the busted relationships, the dissatisfaction with daily life, 
I mean, we've got a choice to make. And to me, it's not that big a, or that hard a choice. It's a big choice, it, but it's not that hard a choice when you understand the nature of the two options. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the time and, the, and, the, and I call the urgency in which we have to make that choice is, is, is now more prevalent than ever. Uh, one study I looked at, I, I just couldn't believe the numbers. I, I'm not saying this is the only study. I'm sure there's many studies out there, but it's showing that 33% of this generation uh, is, is either considering some form of suicide or so depressed that they, that they would, you know, if something was to ignite them, they would, they would just kind of go over that edge. That number is staggering to me, uh, coming from around 10 to 20% of the studies that I've seen uh, to now look at 33% of this millennial generation uh, having that sort of depression and anxiety uh, that would drive them to that level. Uh, you know, so as I think about all this, you know, I'm an optimist by nature, right? I always want to think positive about these because I want families and I want people to flourish. And of course, we know the ultimate way that's going to happen is exactly what you explained. But let me ask you this, thinking about this millennial generation, how can we best help this generation to flourish spiritually, emotionally, physically, to deal with all of these issues that are real, right? We can't ignore them. So they're real. And we know, as you said before, is that it's really that spiritual formation. It's that uh, it's those 66 books that's going to help us with this process. Uh, but you know what? How does a generation uh, before it, Gen X, uh, Boomer, whatever way you want to describe the next two generations uh, who are biblically illiterate themselves for the most part, you know, how can a biblically illiterate generation, Gen X, et cetera, reach a biblically illiterate generation? We've got a challenge, don't we? We do. We do. And, and to me, it comes back to another biblical principle where when you look at how God has transformed cultures historically, he never waits till he has a majority to do great work. He always just works with what the scriptures call a remnant. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that, you know, yeah, in America, we've got a, a spiritual deficit, a worldview deficit, where 94 out of every 100 Americans do not have a biblical worldview. Okay, they need help. Who could possibly give them the help they need? that 6%. That's the remnant. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just to project that into our population, that's 15 million people. Now, when I look at movements in American history, whether we look at the gay movement, the, the sexual liberation movement, uh, you know, the women's rights movement, all kinds of movements, what happened was that they used, they used a, a remnant of individuals who were passionate about what they believed to get their way. And so there is no doubt that God would bless the efforts of that 15 million people. Most of the successful movements in America's history didn't have 15 million people. We do. So we've got more than we need to bring about spiritual renewal and revival and renaissance here in America. What we seem to have been lacking is the leadership to develop that and kind of the vision, the plan, which is what a leader brings to the table for the people who have that passion. So I think one of the things that we can start to do is pray that we will get the leaders 
that we need, who God has put on the scene for today to be encouraging us, to be directing us, to be helping us understand the strategy of how we can embark on bringing about that kind of spiritual transformation that's so desperately needed. Uh, another thing that is going to be imperative in that process is that those of us who have a biblical worldview and have a passion to see that spiritual transformation happen, one of the great skills that we're going to have to hone is that of listening. Now, when we go to different ministries, often they're telling us, go out and tell people this and that, you know, go yeah, out well, and do this yes. and that. And what we know with millennials is they're not looking for us to do anything to them. What they're dying for is somebody to listen to them. Because Terrence, one of the big messages I took from this research is this is a generation that every day is in pain. And, you know, we can turn on Fox News and listen to people making fun of them as snowflakes. Or we can look at the research and say, you know what, it's my job my God-given job to bless these people. And I'm not going to bless them if I'm putting them down by saying, what's your problem? Aren't you strong? Don't you have the courage to face life? Can't you handle these things? Don't you have the intellect? It's like, well, they do, but there are some obstacles in the way. And what we can do is come alongside them, let them talk about those things and give us the opportunity to build a dialogue with them, which then builds a relationship which then gives us that opportunity through that connection to start helping them to see other avenues through which they can solve some of the issues that they're wrestling with. That's going to take time. There's no overnight solution to this. It's going to be the remnant that brings it about, and it's going to be the remnant that's going to have to be consistent in its words and its behavior and in its willingness to invest in the lives of younger people. It's not a simple thing to do. It's going to get frustrating, you know, but think about how frustrating we must be to God. You know, even those of us who are part of the remnant, every day we sin, we, we frustrate the daylights out of him, I'm sure, but we have to have the same patience he has with us as we work with these young people who really are suffering and struggling and confused, and they look at the world around them as being in chaos they don't know where to turn. We can help them figure that out. If we keep our sights focused on Christ and we're willing to love them into his presence. You know, how encouraging that message is to me, I'm sure to so many of our listeners out there, because see, I've now had to rethink as you were speaking, you know, when I think about, and, I, and I'm a real optimist around the next generation, this millennial generation. In fact, that's our target at Victoria's family is we feel that that generation is so critical uh, for the future of America as we move forward. But what you have opened my eyes for a minute as I thought through it. You know, when I look at biblical worldview and for, for the general, this was my study around 65% of the builder generation had about 65% biblical worldview. The, the next generation boomer, uh, that number is around 35% worldview. Gen X as we would know it in some cases, about 16% biblical worldview. Millennials, we're looking now at around eight to four, four to eight. I've heard numbers in different places. But instead of looking at the 4% or the 16% or the 35% or the 64, 65%, we should be looking at the remnant, uh, which is saying, man, 37 million or 
you know, what's 10% of this or 15% of this or 30% of this? Because when I look at that Gen X now, I don't look at 16%, right? With that political worldview. I mean, I don't look at the other 84%, I should say. I look mm -hmm. at the 16%. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that will carry this message forward as we talk about teaching a generation to reach a generation. That's our focus is the remnant. And, and the Lord has used that principle, you know, since the beginning of time, hasn't he? And so, you know, what can you put, uh, pull from the latest research? I want to keep diving into that. Uh, that would indicate the impact of the family of the millennium that we should understand. Because I'm thinking about my own daughter now. Okay. Uh, she's married, loving husband, three kids under two years old. So she's just had twins, my friend. And so she's got seven week old twins. Oh my. Okay. Boy, girl. Yeah. yeah right. Boy, girl. And she has a two year old, just turned two year old uh, daughter. And I'm looking, and she loves the Lord. They're, you know, they're doing all the things. She's part of that 6%. Uh, but, you know, She's struggling right now as a mom, uh, three kids under two, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, just can't readily, you know, get out and do some of the things she normally would do, right? Uh, and yet, uh, she loves the Lord and she wants to, to, to be, you know, to be a, that, that part of the generation that makes a difference. And we were just talking last Sunday, you know, we still do our family devotionals every other Sunday, eight o'clock. I have all the kids on the phone with their spouses and so forth. And we're talking about God's word. This is our year of commission, which we're talking about. How do we begin to serve and, and share this good news with those in our fear of influence? And I see them wanting to do more, but they're struggling with the fact that life is just inundating them. It's it's nine, you know, you get up in the morning, there's no sleep, right? It's every three hours and you're feeding babies, changing babies, whatever. That generation who's so preoccupied with being parents and loving parents, you know, I want to work with them. I want to be a part of their life. I want to listen to them. I want to invest in them. I don't want to judge them. I don't want to come up with all these fancy acronyms for them. I want to love them. And, and I realized one thing they keep telling me is exactly what you said. They want to know how much I care before they before they understand how much I know. They don't really care about what I know. Mm -hmm. Not that I know much, but at least, you know, the little that I thought I do. What they really want to know is dad's there. He's available. He just want to, you know, love us and be be there. So when I think about this generation that I have such a heart for, that I have such optimism for, when I see a study like this, it breaks my heart. It shakes me at the core. George, give me some more sense of hope, maybe coming out of the study or just from your expertise for you this know, generation we, who want to do the right thing, but a lot of times just challenged to do so. Yeah, well, we had done a, a study that came out in the book, Revolutionary Parenting. And one of the things that we discovered there was that the thing, when, when we interviewed young adults who had been raised to be spiritual champions, you know, obviously they're the aberration. Most people in their generation aren't. What caused them to go that route? And we interviewed them and their parents about, you know, what were the dynamics growing up that enabled this to happen? The, the thing that came out most frequently was my parents were consistent. 
They never let up. You know, so when I look back at who my parents were, I saw them as people of God. And there was no time during the day or the week when they weren't behaving like people of God. And that impressed the young people. And this goes back to, you know, what we've talked about in terms of modeling, how critical that is. People learn through observation. Young children especially learn through observation. And the people that they trust the most tend to be their parents. Yes. And so when the people they trust the most consistently convey the message that the only way to live is as a person of God, that implants itself in there. Now, the culture will be constantly trying to knock that out. But then your parents keep implanting it deeper and deeper and deeper, year after year after year. Eventually, that takes root. That's not going to go away. So that's an important thing. You know, a, a second thing is to involve the larger family unit in that process of raising the children. As, as I you know, alluded to earlier, grandparents have, I think, an underappreciated role in raising up their grandchildren to be spiritual champions. Their own children, the parents of those youngsters, need a break sometimes, but they also need reinforcement in what they're doing. Grandparents, usually, not always, but usually, are also trusted by those children. And so here's another of the limited number of trusted individuals who have the opportunity to do the very same thing that the parents did, be consistent in what you're conveying. There's often the desire or the the pull to try to win over the kids by giving them stuff or by letting them have their way or whatever and thinking, oh, I get to leave in four hours. That's not the way to think about it. The way to think about it is I've only got a little bit of time with these children. And the reason that God has given me that time, and that's how you got the time. It's not your child that gave you the time with their Mm -hmm. children. It's God who orchestrated that for you. And it's for a purpose. And so to be thinking about how can I love the kids and have a great time with them, but in the context of modeling for them what a man or a woman of God looks like, that's what a grandparent has to leave behind. Not all the the candy and the books and they got to watch a program they couldn't watch otherwise. It's got to be some lesson that was modeled for the kids in that limited time that you have with them. That's going to be the enduring benefit of being a grandparent. You know, another thing is going to have to do with media. How does the parent shape the media environment of the Mm -hmm. children? And it grieves me to watch millennial parents. And now we're seeing more Gen Z's who are becoming parents and kind of the lenience that they have leniency with their kids and media, allowing the kids to have as much screen time as they want with as many screens as they want and any kind of content that they want, because the parents are too busy to monitor it. You know, and and to me, it's the the four M's of media. You know, you got to minimize that media content. You got to monitor it. You got to mediate it. Talk about what they've been exposed to and then moralize it talk about right and wrong and what they've seen. That's all, you know, a a critical part of it. But then the other thing too, is being attentive to the relationships that the children are going to be developing. You need to be the one that's, that's putting the fence around who's going to be playing with your kids because those peers are going to have an impact. When we talk about the individuals who they get to know and trust 
and imitate. Some of it is going to be peers. And so we've got to be very careful about the kind of people that we let them have a lot of time with, because that's going to influence their thinking. Keep in mind, the worldview starts developing 15, 18 months of age, almost fully developed by the age of 13. I know we talked about that last time, so I don't want to keep going over the same ground, but, but that's a critical thing to keep in mind. That's when a child's worldview develops. It's shaped by their media, it's shaped by their parents, it's shaped by their friends, it's shaped by their schools. And so the, the more careful we are about those particular influences, the greater the chance we have of raising a spiritual champion. Awesome. Well, today we're talking with Dr. George Barner. We're talking about an extensive study on the millennials he's just completed. Millennials in America, he's talking about new insights into the generation that that's, has growing influence. Uh, George, I'm, I'm just blown away. You, you had me going too, but you just mentioned one area that I need to point out. You mentioned around the candy. Uh, we, we, we've got to be good candy suppliers of, of our children. <laughs> but uh, other than that, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm in agreement of everything else that you just said, <laughs> right? So as we wrap this session up, but no, I hate to go. I mean, we could do another five sessions. Uh, you may not want to do that. I would love to do another five <laughs> sessions. But I'm um, for it. yeah, yeah. Uh, either regards to the research or, or any point, I'd like to give you the last minute or two just to wrap up and point out, you can go anywhere you'd like to go. I like, I love to get that to our guests in this last segment. Uh, and, and first of all, tell us where we can find this research. Uh, how can we uh, connect with the research if we're parents out there looking or just anyone, what's the best way to connect with the research? Well, if people go to the website of culturalresearchcenter.com, okay. we put all our studies there. They're all free. You can download them. This millennial report, I don't know, it's like 120 pages or something. Uh, you know, you can download that for free. Uh, Foundations of Freedom hired a graphic designer to make it look pretty. So it's not my usual thing of all text and charts. You know, they made it look beautiful. So it's easier to get through. Um, you know, but those are all available uh, there. So I'd encourage people to do that. And then at georgebarna.com, that's where a lot of my books are found. So uh, if those are value, you can get those there. Fantastic. Fantastic. So let me give you the last word and just share from your heart anywhere you want to go. Um, you know, we have parents out there. We have professional people out there that are listening. They have a heart and passion for this generation you're speaking to. Um what would you say to them if you had five minutes or two minutes or one minute with them and they, and you just listen and then now you're responding? Yeah. You know, to, to me, it all comes back to worldview. I look at the news every day and I hear about our economic crisis, our political crisis, our family crisis, our educational crisis, and on and on and on, all these different crises. And when I listen to what they're reporting and then do a little bit of digging to figure out, well, what caused that crisis? It inevitably comes back to worldview. That may seem simplistic, but if you think about it, that's logical. Why? Because all of the crises that we face in our country are based on the decisions that people are making. On what basis do they make those decisions? Every decision we make is based on our worldview. And so if we're making bad decisions, it's because we got a bad worldview perspective and we need to fix that. So my, my thing here is, you know what? If we want to transform American culture 
to be something that's God-honoring, to be something that's a joy to live within, to something that we want to be investing in and, and, and pouring back into. What that means is we've got to go back and work on the worldview of Americans. The reason that we live in turbulence and chaos today is because that's where our worldviews are. 88% of Americans have syncretism as their worldview, which isn't even a worldview. It's, it's a mishmash of ideas drawn from many different philosophies of life. They don't fit together. They contradict each other. No wonder we've got you know, mental illness of anxiety and fear and depression. We don't even know what we believe. We can't stand strong on it, as opposed to going back to God's word, which gives us a worldview that's consistent, it's coherent, it's comprehensive, it's true, and it's accurate. And he gave it to us in order for us to thrive in life, because that's what he wants for us. He loves us. And so he gives us the tools that we need to be able to live the kind of life that ultimately we would enjoy. So, you know, when I talk with people and, and they express different things that they're wrestling with or concerns about the culture, I try to point us back to this issue of worldview, which people don't think about. They don't really understand. They don't invest in. We say, oh yeah, that's an academic exercise. It's not. Put different world, words around it. If you want to call it philosophy of life instead of worldview, fine. Call it whatever you want to call it but it's a real issue for America. It's the central issue for America. And the more that we can address that, the more likely we are to get back on track. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Um, parents out there and, and those who are listening, if it, um, we are Victoria's family and you can find information on this podcast at victoriasfamily.org, of course, all the podcast platforms. Uh, but we, uh, as we think about this one question, do your children believe? And what is your role in that process to shape that biblical worldview uh, through the good news of the gospel uh, message? But as uh, Dr. George Barner has said today, my friend George, he's talked about we have to model what we say because more is caught than, than taught. And so here we are uh, modeling this behavior, uh, not because we are good Christians, but because we are the least of these. And yet we know that by his grace, we have been saved by faith. And so we ask that as we look at this generation, know that they are just like us at one point. They are a generation who are thriving to flourish, but yet they may not know how. George, it's been a pleasure. Always. Next time, man, we'll get together. We'll do some rhythm and blues stuff. Uh, we'll have some fun. And maybe I'll sit across the table from you with a cup of coffee, in my case, a cup of Coca-Cola. Uh, and we'll just have a jam session, man, and just go from there. Thank you so much for your time, my friend. Thanks for letting me be here, Terrence. I appreciate it. God appreciate bless you. Man. Same here.